be seated. Good evening, encourage you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, we'll consider verses 1 to 22 tonight. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, speaks of the thorn in the flesh, which he said was a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. And one of the theories in what happened, what the thorn actually was, is some physical ailment, some physical limitation, some loss of abilities, perhaps something like an eye problem or migraines or epilepsy, something of that nature, some physical pain came in his life, some physical limitation, and he struggled mightily with that and hindered the ministry which he had. The reality is on this side of Genesis chapter 3, we will all struggle with limitations. If you haven't faced it when you were young, you will face it when you were old. My father always says it's hard work growing up. In fact, he was a man who never had to have glasses till about the age of 50. We all knew he needed glasses because he couldn't get the paper right and how far or close it was. I remember kindly joking with him one night at a football game. He dropped his program between the bleachers. And I said, with a grin on my face, just think, Dad, if it turned over, you'd be able to read it about here. And my sweet father smiled back and said, one day, John, one day. And sure enough, the day has now come and here we are. Loss, loss of eyesight, loss of hearing, loss of mobility. Even gets worse from there, loss of a grandparent or a parent, uh, loss of a spouse, loss of a marriage, loss of an unborn child, but loss of a child. We all face loss and limitation. The, the reality is that every person you meet on the planet wrestles with loss, and they struggle to put it in some category, some box. They struggle to make some understanding of why this thing has happened and what does it mean. God gives us Job chapter 1. In fact, the entirety of the book of Job here, we'll consider chapter 1 tonight to say, here's what, it hap what happens when loss comes, and here's a category for us to consider it. Let's read Job chapter 1, verse 1 to 22. Be reminded, of course, the Bible is the inspired and errant, infallible word of God. It's our only rule of faith and practice. Here, Job 1, beginning in verse 1. In the land of Oz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of fast feasting had run its course, Joe would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed their God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? 
Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, the Lord, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked them and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we consider the loss in Job's life and we consider more carefully Job's response. We pray that tonight you would work, O oh God, in our hearts and minds, that we would see what Job saw. And that so, so that rather dealing, we're dealing with past pain or future pain, you would prepare us even now to have a grace-shaped heart that sees the world through the lens of a sovereign, gracious God. Do this sweet work, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Job has lost oxen and donkeys and sheep and camels and servants, and seven sons, and three daughters in this short span. It is remarkable to read Job chapter 1 and see the factors involved in that loss, and then for a moment consider what happens in our own life 
some of these same factors are at work or will be at work? And the question for you and I comes, what do we see the most? What do we see perhaps even first? Let me walk you through five factors of loss. What were the reasons why these things happened? And then we'll spend some time on verse 21 in particular to say, how should we respond? The first factor is Satan himself, the influence of Satan. We find that in verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with him. It's remarkable. Satan is before God himself. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming the earth, going back and forth on it. Jesus will say in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. But in Job chapter 1, he's not falling from heaven. He's in heaven before the presence of God Almighty. Having come from roaming the earth, Peter will tell us what he does upon that earth, right? He roams like a lion, seeking to devour someone. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. We know what he's been doing. And here, in this moment, in Job chapter 1, he has access to God himself. We believe Job wanted to be historical truth, a true story. And so here he is, before the very presence of God, having come from roaming the earth, seeking someone to devour. It happened in Job chapter 1. We can say it did happen and therefore can say it can happen. We don't know how often it happens after this. But the Bible doesn't speak about this. But we understand here that part of the reason Job happens, part of the reason of the great loss is the influence of Satan himself. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life. We understand this is the very nature of Satan himself to destroy all the works of God and to go after the people of God. And therefore, we have to, in our calculations of loss, we have to say one possibility is Satan himself. We, we find here in Job chapter one, we understand from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, when Paul says, the thorn in the flesh was given to me, he says it was a messenger of Satan. This idea that there is an evil spiritual realm that we contend with. Now, I understand the day we live in. The, the modern mind, the modern man, thinks it's too little a thing to speak of an evil spiritual realm. It's what medieval folks were worried about. The modern man doesn't speak in terms of evil and loss. But here, the book of Job says it's true. And Paul will say, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Do you remember his words in Ephesians 6? We wrestle against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of the evil realms. We, we find this battle that's happening. Now don't run and say, everything that happens bad in my life was the devil doing it. Uh, we are able of our own accord to get in great trouble all by ourselves. And yet, on our radar must be Job chapter one. Satan hates the church. He desires to still to steal and kill and destroy all that God is doing. 
And therefore, on our radar must be this reality of the influence of Satan himself. And yet the second factor tied together with Satan coming before the Lord, the second factor must be God himself, the sovereignty of God. So we have the influence of Satan and now the sovereignty of God. Consider verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. There's no one. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I think you could pause with verse 8 and we could scratch our heads as if Satan didn't see the man. And God says, I've got a great one you can attack. And, and we could be sorely angry about that for a moment. Why would God put Job before the people? What favor is God doing to his servant Job on this occasion? Except we pause and we remember a couple of truths. Number one, what God is doing is far different than what Satan is doing. Satan wants to steal. Satan, Satan wants to kill. Satan wants to destroy. What does God want to do? He disciplines us in love. He's like a good father who for a season will discipline us. Have Hebrews chapter 12. But whose desire is to build us up in holiness. The intent is completely opposite. Remember that first. And secondly, remember, this is not two equal parties meeting together, Satan and God himself. Notice verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. There is the influence of Satan, and then there's the sovereignty of God, who in his infinite wisdom, which is, which is so much more than ours, he allows this kind of things to happen. Even sets before Satan himself a person to take, but it's limited. You can take his stuff, but you can't touch him. Our God is sovereign over this occasion. This is not two equal parties. This is not his fate is in jeopardy now. But a sovereign God who says, you will go this far and no further. The sovereignty of God is very much here. The third factor is the actions of sinful men. You see that in verse 15 where you find the Sabaeans. And then verse 17, where you find the Chaldeans. These are raiding parties. Uh, verse 14, a messenger comes and says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. Verse 15, the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword, and I and I alone are left. Verse 17 says the same thing. A different raiding party comes in. Sinful men doing sinful things, taking what does not belong to them. It is the reality that sometimes our loss comes at the hands of sinful men. It's a drunk driver who, who carelessly plows into you and your car. It's a thief who decides he wants to take what belongs to you and breaks in your home. It's a it's a leader of a country who says, I want to make the country next door my country, and goes in and invades it. It's sinful men doing sinful things. The reality is everyone we meet around us has that sin bubbling in their hearts, and sometimes in the sovereignty of God, he permits that to happen, and they come and they take. Our loss comes at times from sinful men. Number four, then we have destructive powers of nature. We find that in verse 16. 
the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Probably lightning becomes the, the common commentary theme. This is lightning striking in a moment, fire coming from heaven, burning that up. And then we find it again in verse 18. While still speaking, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in in the desert and struck the the four corners of the house that collapsed on them and they are dead and I alone am there. We had friends who lived just outside Savannah when those tornadoes rolled through a few weeks ago. Jason and Jenny called and told the story of, of hearing the storms were coming. They gathered in the living room. They saw in the radar, it's getting close. They were about to run to the, uh, to the bathroom and hide, as it were, in the tub when the tornado directly hit their home. It's one of those images now where you look and there's just the pad. There's nothing left built on the house. Jason said, we woke up in the front yard. Broken bones and puncture wounds, but he and his wife and his teenage girl and teenage sons uh, were all alive. He had no possessions. They didn't grab wallets. They didn't have cell phones. Uh, He would get a driver's license a couple days later because the storm had taken his insurance card 20 miles away. And some guy showed back up and says, I think this belongs to you. That's how they rebuilt. Storms in a moment can take great pain and great loss upon us. We see it on the news every day. There's, they're catastrophic events. And the same happens here in Job. Sometimes it's the destructive power of nature. And then fifthly and finally, as far as factors, I want us to look at Job himself. It is fascinating. The book of Job goes out of its way to say that in this occasion, the problem wasn't Job. Look at verse 1. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And then at the very end, in not charging, verse 22, he doesn't sin by charging God with these things. It is quite remarkable of all the factors I can tell you in Job chapter 1, it wasn't Job himself. And that's not ordinarily the case. (laughs) Ordinarily, you and I can cause great trouble on ourselves. Now, Job was not a sinless man. Don't make a mistake that. Job was an upright and godly man. How is that the case? It's only because of the grace of God working in him. Remember, Noah found favor in the sight of God. Noah found grace in the sight of God. The grace comes first, and godliness comes as a fruit. And so we understand here with Job's life, sinful man, shaped by the grace of God, and in this moment, the cause is not Job. But ordinarily, for the rest of us, there's all kinds of sinful actions and sinful desires that cause us great harm upon ourselves. Joseph's trouble came from the jealousy of his brothers in Genesis chapter 37. David's trouble starts with the lust of his own eyes in the book of Samuel. We find there's a sufficient motivation in our own hearts. We don't need Satan to cause it. We can do it all by ourselves. And then put the two together like in Judas's life, take the love of money and Satan influencing, we can find great trouble. Ordinarily, this fifth factor is major. The man who who smokes all his life and develops lung cancer, the 
the person who eats fatty foods all their lives and has clogged arteries, these troubles that come upon ourselves as we act in ways that are harmful and wrong. And so here, this factor is ourselves and understanding that's the way we must think. What are the factors involved in our own failures, our own loss? What's the fascinating is in this moment where we've walked through the five factors and then we, we've seen he's lost donkey, donkeys and sheep and oxen and camels and servants and seven sons and three daughters. What does Job do now? What does Job see? What does Job say? Come to verse 20 for a moment as we think of his response. Job got up. And he tore his robes and he shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This is, this is a grace-shaped heart. This is the grace of God working in a man's life so that what he sees is not the ordinary reactions of a sinful man. A natural reaction says, I will rant about the devil and all he's done to me. Or I'm going to go tweet about those terroristic groups, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. I'm going to post something on social media about the weather guy and all the failures that have come. We, we think of secondary causes. And we major on those things. We, we rant and we are furious. We look at our own hearts and say, what have I done wrong? But Job, he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's a remarkable work of grace in our life. If you think of the loss that you've had and your natural response this is not the way it ordinarily works. This is not the, the power of positive thinking, right? I'm just going to think it's going to be okay. This is a man who sees all those factors. And when loss comes in your life, we do have to think about at times the log in our own eye. What have I done? What have I failed to do? To think of Satan and his work, to think of the actions of sinful men or sinful family members. But what we learn here in Job chapter 1 is grace shapes our heart to see God first. The interpretive lens by which I'm going to see the world, according to Job chapter 1, is I'm going to look at God first and foremost. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Never mind Satan for a moment. Never mind sinful men. Never mind nature. Never mind my own heart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, that's the lens through which I'm going to see the world. And so this is a grace-shaped life. You, you have to understand that every single person you will meet this week is trying to make sense of the loss that they see around them. They're trying to put it in some box, some understanding, and they're going to interpret it in different ways. So for instance, the, the deist. The one who says there's a God, but he's just in heaven. He has no involvement in the affairs of men. They're going to say he's up there, but this has nothing to do with him. This is 
Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, deists. And there's plenty of modern day deists in, in our time. They just don't connect the dots. On the other end, there's the naturalist. The naturalist says there's only nature. There's no God around. There's only science. There's only cause and effect around us. You have to think only there for a bit. These are your Carl Sagan's, right? Then there's the folks that are the nihilist. The nihilist says there's really no objective truth, no real meaning in life. This is the, the Shakespeare line, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. We just have to endure what's around us because there's no objective truth. And so in these, in these worldviews, and there are many others, they're trying to fit life into a category. The divorce of parents or the loss of a job, they're trying to make sense of it. And here Job says, this is the way we see the world. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's the first thing we see that in all the gains that we have and all the losses that we take, we see the hand of God first. The Lord gives. Every life and breath is a gift from God himself. Every loss first comes from the sovereign, gracious hands of God. Job said, oh, that's the first thing I'm gonna see. This God of the Bible who created me, gave me life and breath, Everything I have, it comes from him. And everything I lose is taken ultimately by my heavenly father himself. This God who we understand in our day and age loves us enough to give us his own son who provided for our greatest need in Christ Jesus, who meets our every need in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us his spirit to be able to walk with us all the days, who will never cause us to lack. That God is the one who gives and the one who takes away. And so in our minds, we begin to train ourselves. Whatever you have, it's a gift from God. It's not yours. You didn't create it. God gave it to you as a gift. God loaned it to you. And in God's sovereignty, he can take it back at any moment. And therefore, the interpretive lens becomes, it's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Therefore, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave me freely. He can take it back if he desires, but I, I trust him. Job, at least in the beginning of the book of Job, is not running to God with accusation. He says, may your name be praised. It's the life of a creature. It's the life of the, of the Christian who understands everything I have is a free gift of God who knows far better than I do what I need and when I need it. And if he so chooses to take it, I know he's given me his son. And therefore, I'm going to worship him in all my gains and worship him in all my losses. Now, I want you to understand I've read this dozens of times before 2016, but I didn't learn it until 2016. In 2015, I'm at the doctor, I've got a sinus infection. The doctor says, how long have you had a heart murmur? And I said, I don't, I don't have a heart murmur. 
And he says, you've got a problem. Who's your cardiologist? And I said, ma'am, I'm 43 years of age. I don't have a cardiologist. But I knew even that first moment in the back of my head, I had a father who at the age of 35 had an aortic valve that gave out and it was replaced. Aortic valve is the last, there's a lot of doctors in the room. For the rest of y'all, it's the last valve that comes out of your heart. It's that oxygen-rich blood, that valve needs to open and fully close and then you're good. But an aortic valve begins to fail, you've got to get it replaced. My father had it replaced at 35 and mine began to fail at 44. 43. When I'm 44, my father's in the hospital. He's fallen. He's got a brain bleed. Uh, where his life is uh, at risk. I go to the one-year checkup. They says it's time for surgery. Uh, I would say, listen, my dad's dying. I'm not sim- symptomatic. Can I come back when I'm symptomatic? He would die within 60 days later. A Friday morning, I come up short of breath. I didn't tell Leslie till Saturday because that's what guys do. We wait a little bit. Uh, Sunday, there's a ICU nurse or congregation listens to my heart. I'm just convinced I've got bronchitis. She says, you're clean as a, as a whistle. It's your heart. And therefore, three, day, three weeks later, I'm on an operating table in Atlanta, Georgia. The cardiothoracic surgeon says to me uh, the week before the surgery, here's the plan. It's a routine procedure, which we crack your sternum. We put you on a bypass machine. We stop your heart for four to six hours, replace the valve, shock your heart, and it should start right back up. And I paused at that point. Uh, My father had it twice. Uh, Once when I was a little boy and once when Les and I were dating. We we knew this thing all too well. Had seen it. Not not that it's not survivable, but it's just a bit brutal. I told the doctor it was just the first time in my life the word routine and John Fender's heart stopping had ever been used in the same sentence. And can we talk about the word should for a moment? It should start right back up. And he said, Mr. Fender, you're in congestive heart failure. You're dying. In that moment, you realize this is not elective surgery. We've got to do what we have to do. Well, the surgery went well. It was a Friday morning. It was Good Friday. In fact, I remember that vividly. I missed preaching Easter Sunday. Uh, The surgery was, was routine and went well. On day four, I started presenting pneumonia. And in that day, that cardiothoracic surgeon, who's now the head of Duke's surgery, a gifted man, came in and said, I'm going to bring three other doctors in. We're all different lanes. We're going to work those lanes, and we're going to figure this thing out. Full workup of labs. They come in that afternoon. All four doctors say, this is what we think is going wrong with you. And they all four disagreed. It was a moment where I realized these are very gifted men and women, and yet they were practicing medicine. I would go downhill for about three more days. On day seven, they would say, you probably ought to bring your girls back to the hospital. This is not trending well. And on that Thursday, I remember, I won't go into the details, but a bronchoscopy, if you're a doctor, and they're they're working to get that fluid out of my lung, if that's exactly what it is, uh, which is brutal for a man who's had his chest cracked open and you're coughing and all the pain of that. I've never been so weak in my life I've never been so helpless in all my life. I'm laying there that afternoon, and I'm just about spent. And the doctors are worried. You can watch their faces and say, there's something wrong here. They're disagreeing. But there was a couple of things that God was doing that I began to see. 
We had an elder and his wife who were with us the whole time from the surgery up to that point. They let that elder come back in the ICU room and pray with me. And he said, I've called Pastor Roland Barnes, who was the man who hired me some years before that. And Roland said, not only would he pray for me, but he's, he's coming back from Atlanta. He's going to stop by the hospital and he's going to pray with you. And they let Pastor Barnes back in there and he prayed with me. And in that afternoon, God in his kindness, as he does, speaks by his word. My mind landed on Job 121. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As a husband and father, my mind is just running places like what happens to my wife. What happens to my teenage daughters? What happens to my church family? Why was I in this spot? What had I done wrong? What did I fail to do? What was Satan doing? What were the doctors doing? Why couldn't they fix it? I was running a thousand directions. And God in his kindness said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I realized in my weakness, and I didn't, didn't get out of bed the rest of that day, but I realized as I lay there, my mind needs to land here. My mind needs to think of this truth. It's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. The outcome of this occasion is not in doctor's hands or my hands, but it's in God's hands. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. By the time I went to bed, I remember landing on the truth that if the Lord chooses to take, which was his sovereign right, that even if I had the four most gifted doctors in the state of Georgia, if he chooses to take, I'll never leave the hospital. I'll wake up in heaven itself. And God will figure out a way to take care of my wife and my children and my church family. If the Lord takes, I'm going to heaven because of the kindness of Jesus Christ. But if the Lord chooses to give, even if these doctors miss something, even if they fumble something, if God chooses to give, I'm walking out of the hospital one day. And I went to bed that night, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there, and I slept like a baby. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. What was happening was the grace of God training my mind to say, in the loss that I'm experiencing, and I didn't know where it was going to go, I see God himself first in all my gains and all my losses. God is the ultimate determining factor in this occasion. And though I might be frustrated at some of that and pained over some of that, this is coming from his hands. It has come from heaven itself to the strong, gracious kind hands of God. Well, you wake up at 5 a.m. because there's no better time like 5 a.m. for a chest x-ray at a hospital. <laughs> and if you've had a cracked sternum, you don't want to lean forward, but they did that every morning at no additional charge. <laughs> and about an hour later, here comes the cardiothoracic surgeon who says to me that morning, Mr. Fender, we have no idea how you were getting sick. And we have no idea how you're getting better, but your scans are remarkably better today. 
Now, I can't say to you whether God in his providence used one of those doctors, like one of them was right, and that was the means God used on that particular day to bring me to a better spot. Or God in his extraordinary providence worked without, above, even against those means and worked directly. What I can tell you is he humbled me and he brought me loads where I was this controlling kind of guy who liked to figure these things out to be at, at the end of my rope, as they say, with no control. And God says, I'm going to remove all those distractions and this is what you'll see. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so I can see this truth in a way I would have never seen it had I not gone through the lowness of that moment. Now understand fully, they put in a pig valve in my heart, and it will fail at some point in time. Average is about 15 years. I've got six years down. I go for a yearly checkup. Last September they looked and all was looking well. But the day will come when I'll go in that doctor's office and he'll say, I'm starting to see some fatigue. The day's coming soon. And my hope, not only for my own heart, but even for your heart today, spiritually speaking, is you would be able to say, I'm going to look at God first. I'm not going to run, as it were, which I'm so prone to do, to the actions of sinful men or the actions of my own sinful heart or the world of Satan's attack around us, but I'm going to see God himself. To know my life and my death are dependent upon one ultimate factor. It's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord and all my gains and all my losses. May God, in his kindness, teach you that truth in an easier way, that, when we, that we may see these things in a faster way, that we might run to the praising, run right past the fretting to say, God is sovereign, and I trust the God who gives and the God who takes away. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these can be <coughs> so deep waters. So mysterious, there's so much that we could be angry at you for. And yet, oh God, we remember your character even this night as grace shaped Job's life. And we have so much more of the Bible story. We can see so much more of the goodness and power and sovereignty of God upon the cross. May our minds run even faster by your spirit to this glorious truth. May we see all of life through the lens of Job 121. It's you, O God, who gives, and it's you who takes away, and so therefore may your name be praised in our life, both individually and as a church family. We pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.